Have you ever failed something? Failed a test? Failed a relationship? Failed a job? Anybody? Failed at doing right by somebody that you care about? Failed to obey God? Failed to live like a true Christian? I was reading up about failure this week and found some really inspirational quotations about how failure is necessary to growth and necessary for change. And uh, one of the quotations I saw is, failure is not an option, it's an absolute necessity. Meaning if you're going to risk something big, you're probably going to fail along the way. Another one that I saw said, the antidote for the fear of failure is not success. It's small doses of failure. Isn't that good? That's Mark Batterson who said that. So I was thinking about failure from that perspective. But in light of our passage today, I found myself thinking, but what about when the failure is really, really big? What about when it's the kind of failure that's not so inspirational, and it's just the kind of failure that doesn't lead to future success. It's the kind of failure that blows up your life. What about, what about that kind of failure? The, the, the failed kind of way where you honestly don't know how you're going to get up and face people the next day. Anybody been there? The, the kind of failure where you just can't even look at people and you just don't even want to deal with yourself. That kind of failure. So we're at this passage today in Numbers chapter 20, a passage about a really, really big failure. And as we've journeyed with the people of Israel through the book of Numbers from Mount Sinai to the desert of Paran to the plains of Moab, as they journey in this 40-year journey toward the promised land, we've had story after story, account after account of failure. The wilderness wanderings are all about the Israelites failing over and over and over again and failing at all levels of of leadership. We have the the 12 tribes of Israel represented by the 12 spies that went out into the promised land and how they failed to put their faith in God to go directly into the promised land. And then God said, you've got 40 years in the wilderness and this generation will die off before I will bring the next generation into the promised land. And we have the the passage we talked about last week with Korah's rebellion, where these these were Levites. They were people who lived close to the presence of God. And they, the people who were very, very close to the presence of God, the people who carried the holy of holies, they failed. And today is a passage about the two people, Moses and Aaron, who were the closest to the presence of God and the failure that even they experienced. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Miriam was Moses and Aaron's sister. The desert of Zin is different from the desert of Sin, and so if you're remembering some of your geography, uh, these are different places. And we've also had a little bit of a time warp. We are now in Numbers chapter 20, so we're nearing the end of the book of Numbers, but we're actually, in terms of the history of Israel, 
we're, we're just getting ready to enter in to the last year of wilderness wanderings of Israel going through the desert. Now, if it seems like that happened really fast, it kind of has, because the book of Numbers is written that way. A lot of what, what's written down happens in, in the first uh, few years of Numbers, and then you've got a couple things along the way, but then you get here to, uh, to, to about halfway through the book of Numbers, and then you're kind of dealing with the things that happened in the last year before they go into the promised land. So they don't, there's not a whole lot that covers those in-between years. So if you think it went fast, it, it did. That's what's happening in the book. By this point, they, they've been in the desert 38, 39 years or so. By this point, most of the first generation of those who had left Egypt have died off. Moses, uh, first, he, he first left Egypt when he, was prince of e when he was a prince in Egypt when he was 40 years old. He, the, he, the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush when Moses was 80 years old. And it was at that point that then the Lord commissioned Moses to go lead people out of Egypt. Now another 40 years has passed. Moses is in around his 120th year of life. And he is preparing to get the Israelites ready to enter into the promised land. So, th so that's where we are in terms of time frame and geography and history. Continuing on with the passage, Numbers 20, verse 2. Now, there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Now remember, most of the parents have passed on, and if you're thinking that some of these complaints sound familiar, there's a reason for that. And here it is, their children are continuing on the spiritual legacy that their parents passed on to them, a legacy of grumbling and complaining and quarreling. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. The Lord says, speak to that rock and tell that rock to give water. And the scripture says Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. So far. But then something happens between the end of verse 9 and what we're going to read just a minute in verse 10. Something happens that the Bible doesn't record. Because somewhere in between the instructions that God gives to Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron actually acting on it and doing what they needed to do, something changes. Moses and Aaron decide to do something a little, just slightly different than what God had said. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, did God tell him to say anything to the people? Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Listen up, rebels. 
must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. But let me just say that one more time. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. So they gather together like he's supposed to. But instead of speaking to the rock, Moses strikes the rock. And he communicates to the people that we, meaning him and Aaron, are going to bring water out of the rock, which is also something that was not necessarily part of God's original instructions to them. The passage continues in, in verse 11b. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. Moses and Aaron seek help from the Lord for their need for water. The Lord tells them, speak to the rock and water will come forward. Instead, Moses strikes the rock and the Lord says, not okay. And because of this, Aaron, you and Moses Moses and Aaron, you cannot go into the promised land. The rebellion of the Israelites has touched every level of people. Disobedience, rebellion, not doing things God's way has touched the outer circle of the Israelites, the inner circle of the priests and Levites, and, and the core circle of leadership. It's this picture of Nobody can stand before God. It's this picture of hardened hearts and disobedience. It's a picture of consequences. And, and I think a lot of us read this passage and we think, this seems a little harsh. This consequence seems harsh. It, and we think, was it really that big of a deal that Moses hit the rock instead of spoke to the rock? Is it really that big of a deal? And God here is saying, yes, it is. We're to understand that this was not an accidental slip by Moses, but an intentional decision on the part of him and Aaron. This is a sad chapter. This is a disappointing chapter of Scripture. This is a troubling passage of Scripture. And some of you might stop just with this passage and, and get angry at God about this passage and say, God, if that's, what you, if that's, if that's how you're going to be, God, I'm, I'm done. I'm walking away. Others of you might ask the question, well, if even Moses and Aaron are going to do this, what... what would God punish me like this too? Last week's passage on Korah's rebellion was troubling and disturbing. This week's passage on Moses and Aaron is troubling and disturbing. Next week's passage on Balaam and his donkey is funny and joyful. It's quite humorous, and it's a story full of hope. 
But this week, in Numbers chapter 20, it's, it's, a chapter of, it's a chapter of failure. And I think we've all had chapters of failure in our lives. Failure to be faithful to God, failure in, in t- tests that we've had to take, failure morally when it really mattered that we make the right and moral decision and we didn't, failure to show up when we should have showed up. Next week, we will talk about Balaam's ass, and we will snicker and chuckle, just like the Israelites did. And we'll hear a message of hope from a God who blesses. But today, in this chapter of failure, today's passage doesn't have a happy ending yet. What, what we just read, it's, it is what it is. There is not a surprise twist that God says, oh, by the way, Moses, you can come into the promised land after all. It's not how it w- works. Today's passage serves as a, a challenge and a wake-up call to remind us of the godness of God, the holiness of God, that God is God and, and we are not, that we are not God to remind us, to warn us from sin, and to challenge us toward a trajectory of holiness. And so I want to lean into some lessons about failure that I think this passage teaches us. Lesson number one, what can we learn about failure? Number one, God gets to define how bad your sin is. He gets to define how bad your sin is or is not. No one else gets to define how bad it is, not even you. God is the one who gets to say, this is a big deal. God is the one who gets to say, this is not as big a deal as what you think it is. Sometimes we have angst over consequences that we think are too harsh. Have you ever been in a position of receiving a consequence that's too harsh? Or that you think is too harsh? And and I can't tell you whether it was or not because I am not a just judge of those things. I won't tell you if your situation was fair or not. But I will say that, that when it comes to consequences that do come from God, God gets to define what is a big deal and worthy of a big consequence or not. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is the one who gets to define failure. So, here we are. We're at Numbers chapter 20. I want to flash back a minute to the book of Exodus. Now, if you remember, we had the Pentateuch. We have how many books in the Pentateuch and in, in the Torah? Five. And what's the center book in the middle of the Torah? Leviticus. Good, the book of the law. And on either side of Leviticus, we have the book of Exodus that, that narrates the Israelites coming out of slavery toward their wilderness wanderings. And on the other side of Leviticus, we have the story of the Israelites journeying from Mount Sinai into the Promised Land. So these two books of traveling are on either side of the book of the law. And as we've talked about the last couple weeks, there's a lot of literary connection between these, and we are meant to be Bible scholars, and we are meant to notice how all of these things connect. And so we're meant to pay attention to when there are are comparisons and similarities and, and parallels between Exodus and Numbers. So uh, this, this passage won't be on the screen, but I want to flash back to the book of Exodus chapter 17, and there is a passage in here that sounds remarkably similar to the one that we just read. Just listen to what this is, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. 
the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, so not the desert of Zin, this is the desert of Sin, traveling, and that doesn't mean Sin Sin, that's just, that was a Hebrew word, they'd pronounce it Sin, we just say Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, sound familiar? And said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Sounds very, very amazingly familiar, does it not? Except instead of this being the second generation of people, like it is in Numbers, this is the first generation of people who have come out of Egypt. Verse 4. Once again, then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here we have a very similar story that happened about 40 years earlier with the first generation of Israelites. They once again do not have water. Once again, the Lord, the, Moses goes to the Lord. Once again, the Lord says, I'm going to bring water from a rock. But this time, the Lord is saying, strike the rock with your staff. And if you were reading closely, you might have even noticed that in the Numbers passage, it talks about going to a place called Meribah. And here in the Exodus story, it's talking about Meribah and Massah. These are actually two different Meribahs. They just happen to have the same name. We are meant to make these connections. We are meant to notice that God is doing a similar story here. The point of this repetition is that we're supposed to make comparisons. We're supposed to notice these things. We're supposed to we're supposed to compare and have our attention drawn here, and we're supposed to see how they are, are and are not the same. So the first time the Lord said, strike the rock, this time he says, speak to the rock. It's a new set of instructions. We don't know why, but it's a new set of instructions in Numbers chapter 20. And in Numbers chapter 20, we don't know why, but Moses doesn't do it. And then Moses has this consequence. As I was reading through this passage, I thought, okay, so the Lord just speaks to Moses, and the Lord says to Moses, okay, Moses, you, you won't be able to enter the promised land. What's next? And I found myself wondering, how did Moses respond to that? What did he do? Here he was around 120 years old. He'd been through an awful lot with these Israelites. And here the Lord is saying to him, you're not going to be able to enter the promised land. How does Moses respond? And so, so I read the passage, and I, I read here. It's Moses 20, verse, excuse me, not Moses, the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. And then it, all it says in the next verse is, these were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. It doesn't tell us how Moses responded. How would, how would you respond? How would you respond if you have a big consequence for messing up? How, how have you responded when 
you failed a test. How have you responded when the judge passes down the sentence? How have you responded when you're told you have to pay the fine? When you're, when you're stuck with the result, when you didn't follow God, when you sinned, when you realize there are natural consequences, things have just happened because of the choices you made. We don't have a record of Moses responding. I, I would guess, this isn't in the Bible, I would guess he wept. I would guess at some point he would have wept over his disappointment, wept in that dry wilderness of Zin with his salty tears dropping into that dry, sandy wasteland. And sometimes when we fail, we just weep. We weep for the frustration. We weep for the sorrow, the disappointment, the regret. Sometimes we can't undo what we did. And sometimes we fail, and we can't undo the failure. We can try to seek restitution. We can try to make things right. But sometimes you just can't undo the failure, and, and you have to live with what you've done. Here's what happens next in Numbers chapter 20. And as the, this is the very next passage of Scripture. This is what the Bible says does happen. Numbers 20, verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. And then it goes on and says what Moses did with Edom. I don't even care what he did with Edom. I, I just want us to focus here. Moses kept on going? What? He kept on going. God says to him, Moses, you have a consequence, a big one. You're not going to enter the promised land. And the scripture gives us crickets from Moses. Silence. We don't hear anything about Moses' response. And the next verse is, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Moses keeps on going. He keeps on leading. He keeps on seeking to serve God. He returns to the work that God has called him to do. He could have walked off. He could have quit right there. He could have said, I'm done. He could have said, it was nice knowing you, people of Israel, but that's it. Here's the second lesson I think that we can learn about failure if we want to faithfully follow Jesus in it. Number two, after failure, humbly receive your consequence and keep going. Sure, you can turn away from God. Sure, you can be angry with God. Sure, you can hold a grudge against God. Sure, you can believe that God is too harsh. And often we're tempted to do that, like, like little children who are angry at getting our, our discipline. But Moses shows us here an example of somebody who says, well, just because I failed once doesn't mean I'm going to stay there. Humbly receive your consequences and keep going. The third lesson about failure is this, number three. Forgiveness doesn't always mean, excuse me, forgiveness, I just want to emphasize that, forgiveness doesn't always mean that consequences will go away. There are some things that even when you experience or, or forgiveness, there are still consequences. Even if you offer forgiveness to someone who has hurt you, often there are still consequences for them. For example, with some traffic violations, if you break certain laws, your license will be suspended. And it doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean that you can't necessarily have a second chance. But it does mean that you have to walk through the process of earning trust back. And just because we're forgiven doesn't necessarily mean there won't be any consequences. 
And it's not as though this particular situation ruined Moses' relationship with God for the rest of his life. It's not like God didn't forgive Moses. Something does change for Moses from this point on. There are consequences. But it doesn't change God's love for Moses. It doesn't change God's choice of Moses to be his leader, to be his prophet for this time. It doesn't change that God has a future for Moses. It's just going to look a little different now. It doesn't change that God doesn't have a purpose for Moses' life. In fact, in in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses dies, we read that God himself buried Moses. And we read that before Moses died, right before he died, God took him up to a mountain on Mount Nebo and had him look off into the distance, and God said, I'll show you the promised land. It's it's out there. You're not going to be able to make it in, but I'm going to give you a glimpse of it. All droplets of God's grace. And after his death, the scripture records that since the time of Moses, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in, in the sight of all Israel. You see, Moses' failure at the rock didn't negate his relationship with God. It didn't permanently break his relationship with God. He was still God's person. The fourth thing, the fourth lesson we can learn about failure is that Moses and Aaron's consequences are warnings. They're warnings to us. I find it so interesting. If you look at the, the um, I meant to give you a picture of this. Some of you have study Bibles. If you've got a study Bible, you might have a tiny little column either in the middle of your Bible or on the sides of your Bible. There's, that's called cross-referencing. And it will show you where, where this particular story happens in multiple places in the Bible. And if you were to just do a quick read through the whole Bible in a few minutes, looking for the story of Moses and water from the rock, you would see all throughout Scripture, this story is told over and over again, both this one and the version from Exodus 17. Over and over you read about how Jesus is, Jesus is the rock and living water that comes from the rock. All over the Scripture you read about how Moses and the Israelites, grum- how, the, how the Israelites grumbled against the Lord. And you'll see over and over through scripture this story being told and reminding of people over and over, be faithful to God, be faithful to God. God's faithful to you, God's faithful to you. Be faithful to God, God's faithful to you. In 1 Corinthians 10, I'm I'm just going to give you a couple samples of, of this. In 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, he takes a minute to teach people about Moses. And he says in Corinthians 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Okay, so he's talking about Moses. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, that's manna, and they drank the same spiritual drink, water from the rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Would you read that verse out loud with me, verse 6? Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things 
as they did. So he says, don't be idolaters, as some of them were. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Verse 9. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11. Will you read this verse with me? These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Verse, chapter, verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to humanity. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Apostle Paul says, learn from Moses, learn from the Israelites. These are examples. Take warning, take note. And the scripture goes on to repeatedly talk about Meribah and Masa, the, uh, the waters at Meribah and Masa. And the scripture says over and over, today, Psalm 95, verse 7, is one example. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Masa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. In Hebrews, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And it says later in Hebrews chapter 3, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Verse 15, as has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Because failure can harden your heart, or it can bring you humbly to your knees, right? The first point was that God is the one who gets to define sin. God gets to define how bad your sin is. God also gets to define how bad your sin isn't. We don't get to define where the bottom is when we hit bottom. We don't get to define that. that that's God's. Moses was our last line of defense. He was, he was the inner circle. He was the closest to the presence of God out of anybody else. And not even Moses could faithfully follow God all the time. And we see here this picture of people who just consistently can't stay faithful to God without help. And this story doesn't just end with Moses and Moses dying. The story ends with God not abandoning his people. We see hints of grace throughout this story. I, I find it so interesting that even though Moses and Aaron did this all wrong, when Moses hits that rock and he hits it twice, he does it all wrong, and what happens? The water still comes. And we have a God who, who buries Moses, a God who gives Moses a view of the promised land. We have hints of grace all along the way. But the story isn't just about Moses, because God's always working on a bigger scale. He's always working with his whole people. 
And we have in the book of Numbers, rebellion number one, rebellion number two, rebellion number three, rebellion number, we have seven rebellions symbolizing the completeness of our rejection of God. And at the end of the seventh and final rebellion, we have a God who pours out blessing on his people. A God who says, I'm still with you. I have not abandoned you. I'm taking you into the promised land. There are consequences for your sin. Just like a parent will discipline a child that he loves. But there's still this love and grace of God that leads us forward. Who has a future for us. A God who takes us all the way through into the promised land. So I want to encourage you today to take the warnings, to heed the warnings, to learn from Moses, to lean on the God who can make you holy, to listen to the God who's speaking to you, to sow righteousness, to break up your hardened heart. Don't let your heart get hard. Soften your heart before God. Humble yourself before God. And say, God, I'm yours. Maybe some of you would say, God, I've failed. But I'm back. God, I know you have a future for me. God, I know you have a plan for this world. And God, I trust you to take us through to the other side. He is the source of righteousness. He is the one who makes us holy. And with communion... We see a God who deals with the problem of unrighteousness. A God who deals with our failures. We see a Jesus who looked like the epitome of failure. Failure and shame. He looked like he lost. Jesus took on all of the ways that we have failed our moral failures, our ethical failures, our failures in friendship, our, when we failed the test. He took all that failure on him. And he paid the price for us to be made right with God. God's doing something, and he's doing something big. And he absolutely wants you to be part of what he's doing. I invite you to, to pause and bow your heads, examine your heart, Ask God to examine your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything to you that needs to be confessed. Ask the Lord to speak to you on how he, how, what you need to hear from him today. And as we sing, and when you're ready, come forward and receive these elements.